have elections coming up here, uh, not this week, but in the uh, upcoming weeks. And it is important that we as believers uh, go out and vote, that we vote according to our values and vote according to how we feel led of the Lord. Too many times we get caught up in labels and and uh, say, well, I'm, I'm this uh, or I'm that or I'm... You know, support this uh, party and that party, and and really it comes down to the fact that we need to be Christians. We need to uh, be led of the Lord and vote according to how He leads us, regardless of what the person looks like, regardless of what party they stand for. Do do they support our values? Do they? Uh, no one's perfect, and we we're not going to find a perfect candidate, and so we need to just throw that out the window. Uh, but look for the one that best represents what is important to us as Christians. And so that is uh, very crucial. Uh, this morning I invite you to open your Bible with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in verses 43 through 52 this morning as we look at the arrest of Jesus. And I had a conversation last night with Burl Ashcraft. He's one of our deputies here in Clark County. And I said, Burl, you ever have anybody resist arrest? And he laughed really hard, and he said, too many to count. And I said, would you mind sharing a couple of those stories with me? And uh, he said, of course. He said, I, I won't tell you any names. But uh, he said, uh, one particular time, he said, I went to arrest a fella, and uh, he resisted me, so we got to scuffling. And he said, we started upstairs and then went downstairs and then ended up in the basement before it was all said and done. And he said, but you know, the, the toughest t- uh, time that I had uh, was with a 16-year-old girl. He said, I went to uh, her house to, uh, to get her for truancy, and he said, she got to fighting me, and uh, he said, she gave it to me for about 30 minutes. And he said, of course, you know, it's, it's a young girl, and I don't want you know, to use exercise too much force on her, he said, but she was whipping me up and down for 30 minutes. He said, finally, I pulled out the taser and threatened her with the taser, and she, and she eventually uh, quit fighting me. He said, but it happens uh, way, way too often, people resisting arrest. But uh, what usually happens is that folks will deny their guilt, They'll, they'll, they'll plead their innocence, and then they'll start fighting you, uh, which is actually an act of, of guilt in and of itself. But today we look at Jesus being arrested, and he does just the opposite. He's not a guilty man who tries to, to fight for his freedom, but he is an innocent man who willingly surrenders himself when he has come to be arrested. He puts up no struggle, and so what does that mean for us as we see this story unfold means we must surrender ourselves to the one who freely surrendered himself for our sins as Jesus put up no struggle we understand that we also should put up no struggle when he comes for us that we should surrender ourselves to the one who freely gave himself for our sins I'd like for you to stand if you're able to this morning in reverence for the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 43, and Mark writes these following words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. 
But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before this passage of Scripture today, Lord, we, we come uh, in reverence, we come in submission. Uh, Father, we come just uh, pleading and asking for you, God, to help us to understand. As we read about this historical event, help us to to know why it is in the Bible, uh, what it meant when it was written, and how it applies to us today. And For that to happen, God, we ask the Holy Spirit, the the one who inspired these words, we ask for him to illuminate uh, this text before us today so that we would leave this place different than when we came in. But for that to happen, God, we must yield to you. And I pray that we would do so, that we would surrender ourselves to the one who freely gave his life for our sins and that we would willingly uh, follow him regardless of the cost. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we've been going through Mark's gospel, we have come to the final hours leading up to the crucifixion. And last week we saw that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he finished his prayer and he was even more resolute than before to do the Father's will, even though the, the will of the Father did include suffering. And the pace here begins to quicken as Mark writes these words for us and and we see, he begins in verse 43 with the word immediately. This is one of his favorite words. We've seen this over and over again throughout the Gospel of Mark. Immediately, he is moving forward in, in rapid progression. As we see the story unfold before us, there are four main characters, one of which is Jesus, and the other three kind of represent for us different responses or reactions to Jesus. And I believe Mark invites us to see if we find ourselves in this text. See if any one of these characters represents where we might stand in our relationship with Jesus Christ. First of all, are you a faithful sellout like Judas? Are you a faithful sellout? Or are you one who turns his back on the Lord and on the faith as Judas did? We see in verse 43 the predicted betrayal as it says, immediately while he was still speaking Judas one of the twelve came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Jesus had predicted earlier back in verse 20, he said, one of you will betray me. One of the twelve will betray me. And this was predicted, and here we see it in fact come to pass here in verse 43 as Judas, who Mark reminds us yet again, one of the twelve, one of Jesus' closest companions, one who spent uh, three years of his life following Jesus and listening to Jesus and serving Jesus, one who was disappointed in the direction in which Jesus was taking him, one who was willing to betray his master. And as Jesus predicted this would happen, it reminds us that Jesus was in complete control. Knowing these things were going to unfold and still willingly moving forward with these things reminds us that Jesus is in complete control. 
He willingly goes through these things as they unfold before us. Judas, one of the twelve, switches teams. He comes with a crowd, and from this point forward, the crowd in Mark's gospel is always hostile to Jesus. Beforehand, there were times where it seemed like the crowd was intrigued by Jesus, or, or the crowd was amazed by Jesus, astonished by him. But from this point forward in the gospel of Mark, the crowd is always hostile to the Lord they came with swords and clubs and this was in direct disobedience to the Passover laws which forbid the Jews to pick up weapons but his enemies weren't really concerned about following the rules at this time. They wanted to make haste. They were looking for an opportunity to, to arrest him away from the crowds and Judas provided that for them. Inside information, he knew where Jesus would be and when he would be there and, and when Jesus would be the most vulnerable and away from the multitude. And Judas betrayed that information to the enemies from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, those who opposed Jesus throughout his ministry. Judas has now aligned himself with them. The predicted betrayal. But it was a premeditated betrayal. Judas was not an innocent victim here, not uh, some victim of fate where he had no choice in the matter. This was premeditated. This was not a temporary lapse in judgment. Verse 44 says, Now he who was betraying him had given them a, a signal. Went so far as to say, Now when we arrive there in the garden, it's going to be dark. You all may not know right off the bat which one of those fellows is Jesus, but trust me, I know him. Uh, I know the contour of his face. I, I know his posture. I, I know which one is Jesus. So follow my signal in this. The one that I kiss is him. I want you to seize him. The word seize comes up again and again in this text uh, of grabbing and grasping and taking a hold of. Judah says seize him. Take him and lead him away under guard. Why, why guard? Why the swords and the clubs? and Why the multitudes there? And Throughout the other Gospels we read that Roman soldiers were even there. Why? They were expecting a fight. They were expecting Jesus to resist arrest. And Judas said, you better bring all your armed guards because there's going to be a struggle because those 11 fellas and Jesus are not going to go easily. He is the one that I kiss, sees him. In verse 45 it says, In coming, Judas immediately went to him. No sign of hesitation in this. This premeditated plan that they had hatched, Judas says, I'm going to betray him to you. Here's the signal. And then when he arrives on the scene immediately, no dragging of the feet. He's already turned on Jesus in his heart. The one who had broken bread with the Lord has now broken fellowship with him. No hesitation. Immediately he goes to him and he says, Rabbi, which means my teacher, my master. And typically, students of rabbis would wait for the rabbi to initiate the acknowledgement, but here Judas initiates this. Jesus, my rabbi, my teacher. And it says, any kissed him 
The word for kiss there is a very emphatic word, meaning that he either prolonged the kiss for a long period of time or, or maybe smothered his face in kisses. This was perhaps to demonstrate that there would be no way, no, that there would be confusion. But really, this is the first time that we see in the story of the Passion, the first mockery of Jesus. As he is mocked time and time again throughout the course of the next several hours leading to his death. But this is the first time Jesus is mocked in the Passion story, and it comes from one of the twelve, one who used to walk with him, one who was a part of his fellowship, a rabbi. And he kissed him. They laid hands on him and they seized him, just as Judas said. Interestingly, in this account, there's four characters. Only two of them are named. One is Jesus, the other is Judas. And in Mark's gospel, this is the last time Judas is ever mentioned. We know from the other gospel stories that there was a, a sense of remorse in which Judas went out and he took his own life. But in Mark's gospel, to Mark's audience, the story of Judas is done. Turned his back on the Lord. No more need to mention Judas. His fate was now sealed. The premeditated betrayal of our Lord. Are you a faithful sellout like Judas? You know, the New Testament predicts over and over again what we call apostasy, uh, the falling away, the, the leaving of the Christian faith. In fact, Jesus predicted this in the last days. Matthew chapter 24, verse 10 and 12. At that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many and because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away of the Christian faith, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The New Testament predicts, yes, Judas betrayed our Lord, but he is not the last. There will be many, perhaps somebody here today, that has once professed faith in Christ, but that commitment was not legitimate. That commitment was temporary. That commitment that will not save you. Are you a faithful sellout, turning your back on the Lord and the faith, just like Judas, who sealed his fate? Are you a faithful sellout, or are you a faithful, a uh, forceful swordsman? A forceful swordsman. Verse forty-seven says, "But one of those who stood by drew his sword." Now, the other gospel writers revealed to us it was Peter on this occasion who drew his sword and he struck back willing to fight for the Lord. This is a violent response to Christian persecution. This is one who says, I'm not going to back down as my Lord is threatened. We see that he was a defensive Christian, and are you a defensive Christian? As Peter drew his sword, interestingly enough, the word sword appears several times in this text, and 
The other two times it's mentioned, it's mentioned in the hands of the enemies of Christ. And here Peter takes out his sword. He is counting himself, in essence, as one of their number, even though he is trying to defend Christ. He is behaving just like the enemy in this scenario. As he was perhaps overzealous to prove himself, as the Lord told him earlier in the night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, Not me, Lord. They might turn their back and run, but not me. I am willing to die for you if need be. And perhaps with that indictment still ringing in his ears, Peter says, I'm not going to back down from this. And he reached and he grabbed his sword overzealous to defend the Lord. Nothing wrong with defending the faith, but this is beyond that. What were the motives, what were the intentions of Peter here? Merely to defend his Lord, or was he willing to lash out, as many of us do, when the faith is attacked? A defensive Christian can be a destructive Christian, as verse Verse 47 goes on to show he, he drew his sword and he struck the slave of the high priest and he cut off his ear. This was an aggressive action against the enemy. This is Peter says, you know, I'm going to wound for Jesus. I know Jesus came to heal, but I am here to wound. And he draws his sword and it says he cut off the ear of the slave of the high priest. Now, one preacher said either Peter was, was a, a really good swordsman or a really terrible one in which he drew out his sword to strike and the only thing he could come up with was an ear. Now, I don't know if that's an indictment on the sword skills of Peter or not. Remember, he was a fisherman by trade. Now, Jesus in other Gospels told Peter, you know, put away the sword. Those who live by it will die by it. And It's not an argument in favor of gun control as some have tried to twist this text to take it but what Peter was here doing was yielding the sword like the enemies of Christ doing more harm than he was good in that scenario a person like myself I'm not very good with doing repairs around the house when things break or things begin to tear up and I've kind of come to the realization why I'm not I don't, I don't have patience it takes patience to fix things because I have in my mind this is the way it's supposed to work and when I go to fix it, this is the way it's supposed to happen. And when it doesn't go that way, it never goes that way. A good craftsman will have the patience to work with the project and I lack that. And oftentimes what happens in my anger, I end up doing more damage to what I'm trying to fix. I'll either stab it or hammer it or, or throw it or do something with it and I cause more damage trying to fix something in the process than I do actually repairing it. And I think it's what Peter is doing in this scenario. He's trying to fix the problem. Cuts off somebody's ear and he does more harm than good. What about you and your Christian walk when others perhaps assault the Christian faith? Perhaps argue with you and you feel the urge welling up inside you to defend yourself, defend the Lord and perhaps the motives 
aren't quite as pure as they need to be in this defense. Perhaps you become beyond defensive and become destructive as if the Lord needs to be defended. As if Jesus cannot defend himself. And that's what he says in the other Gospels. I could call 12 legions of angels, thousands of heavenly warriors to my side to defend me if I wanted to. Our Lord doesn't need our defending He desires our obedience. But are you a forceful swordsman for our Lord? But then we see Jesus in the next part of the story. and We ask the question, is he your faithful Savior? Are you trusting in his sacrificial love for you as he allows this process to unfold? He is faithful so that he would be a Savior to those who would call upon him. Is he your faithful Savior? We see his courage on display in verse 48. It says, Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? He's rebuking them. He says, Do you really think that I was going to pull out my sword and my clubs and fight you? Did you really think that of me? You have observed me for three years now. And you really thought, I would act like a a revolutionary. That's what the word there, robber, is. An insurrectionist, one who who raises up a, a rebellion. Did you really think I would come and fight with you physically when you came to arrest me? That's really how you're going to approach me. Here, Jesus, his courage is on display. He rebukes them for not understanding himself, his actions and his teachings. And here Judas, who had heard the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of God all these years, how it completely went in one ear and out the other, how he missed it so bad that he felt like in order to seize Jesus, we're going to have to struggle with him. The courage of Christ on display. But also his conviction is on display in his arrest Verse 49, he says, Every day I was with you in the temple teaching. Every day I've been here teaching because it was the Father's will. Every day I've been here instructing you about the ways of my Father. Every day I've been teaching you about the truth, uh, about what religion really is. Every day I have been with you teaching in the temple by the Father's will and you have not seized me. Why? It was not his time. Jesus knew the time was coming. He knew the hour now was at hand, but up to that point it was not. He had conviction. He knew what the will of the Father was. When it was time to teach, he taught. And when it was time to surrender, he surrendered. His conviction on display. Every day I was with you teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus' conviction regarding the word of God, that it was true, that all the prophecies about his suffering must come to pass. That even though he prayed, Father, if it be possible that you would remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. His conviction was that now in this situation... 
the will of his father required him to suffer. And his conviction was so strong, he willingly did that. Everybody else in this story gets it completely wrong, but Jesus. But Jesus. Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple, but you did not seize. You did not literally take. You did not take me. The word take has appeared already in the gospel that same night, did it not? Remember when Jesus was sharing the Passover meal with his disciples? He took the bread in verse 22. After a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take it. Take. Seize. Same verb. Take it. This is my body. Every day I was teaching and you did not take what I was willing to give. And because you did not take, now I am offering myself as a sacrifice. They have come. They could not seize me before. It was not my hour, but now the hour has come. I am allowing myself to be taken because it's the will of my Father to be a substitute for your sins. Every day I was with you teaching and you did not seize me. You did not take what I was willing to offer. And so now I am offering myself the will of the Father was that Jesus, his body, be freely offered for sinful men. Like Peter swinging the sword, and like Peter and the rest of them. In verses 50 and following, are you a fearful stranger? Are you a fearful stranger when it comes to responding to Christian persecution? Do you tuck tail and run at the first sign of opposition? to the Lord and to his gospel. We see in verse 50, his followers abandon him. After they come to realize that Jesus is not going to put up a struggle, he's not going to fight back what's left for us to do, if we don't leave, we too will be seized. Verse 50 says, and they all left him and fled. Jesus again had predicted this was going to happen did he not verse 23 it says he gave the cup they all drank from it verse 27 you will all fall away verse 31 Peter says not me Lord if if need be I'll die with you and they were all saying the same thing they all drank Jesus said you're all going to flee they all denied it they all fled they all fled and the way the sentence was written in the Greek the word all comes at the very end it says and they fled all they fled away they ran away who did? all every one of them including Peter they all said it's not going to happen Lord Jesus predicted it would and it came to pass and they all left him and fled. All. Well, who's the all? Anybody else? Well, Mark answers that question for us in verse 51 and 52. His followers abandoned him because the followers were ashamed of him. Ashamed that their master would willingly allow himself to be seized. We have in verse 51 and 52 the mysterious case 
of the first documented streaker in human history. This man is clothed in mystery, but nothing else. We wonder what in the world is going on here. We read this story and we're like, who is this guy? Why is this even in the story? The only time this appears is in Mark's Gospel. You know, Matthew and Luke and John don't write anything about this. So what is this? It's so weird. It's so strange that sometimes when people study this text, that's all they want to focus on. Yeah, 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 Jesus, you know, he, he surrendered himself. Peter lopped off the guy's ear. That's kind of weird. But you know, who is the, who's the streaker? And we spend so much time focusing on that. The text tells us in verse 51, he was a young man. We do know that about the fellow. And it says he was wrapped in nothing but a linen sheet. And so perhaps in, in a moment of haste, didn't really think through it all very much. And I ain't got time. Perhaps understanding or, or realizing that something was about to happen. Young fella, curious fella, in haste, just, just threw a, a sheet over himself in the middle of the night and took out of the house. I don't know about you, but probably first century Palestine in the middle of the night, they didn't really sleep in flannel pajamas. So he grabbed what he had close by, a linen sheet, which, by the way, some speculate that's a sign of a person from a well-to-do family because linen was expensive. And so you tie all this together, and the best guess that folks have is this is Mark himself. He doesn't mention himself, but he says, you know, there was a young man. Mark would have been young at this time as he appears in the book of Acts. And we read in the book of Acts that the disciples met in the upper room to, to pray after Jesus had ascended, and it was in the house of John Mark's family. Some believe, well, maybe the Passover was held in that same house. And here's Mark when Jesus and his disciples leave, and he's curious as to what's going on, what are these fellas doing? And, and so he wraps himself in a linen sheet, and he escapes and sneaks out of the house, hiding out in the garden, watching what's going on. It's speculation. I mean, sounds good, but we don't know for sure. Quite possibly Mark. But I believe... He's purposefully ambiguous about this. He doesn't put himself or his name in that. He leaves it to the reader to say, now who is this fellow who went from following Jesus to fleeing from Jesus? The first sign of trouble. He tucks tail and he runs. He says he was wrapped in nothing but a linen sheet and they seized him. As they seized Jesus, they, they seized him. Jesus yielded. This fellow ran. He struggled. Escaped. He pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. I believe that Mark is purposefully ambiguous about this because he wants the reader to ask themselves the question, is this me? Is this me? going from following to fleeing like that. Fleeing naked, which is a sign of shame. Ashamed that Jesus would surrender himself. Ashamed that Jesus would not fight back. Ashamed that Jesus did not call the angels down to defend him. Ashamed that Jesus rebuked Peter for fighting back with the world's methods. The sword 
Is this you? Are you this young man? Are you this stranger afraid and ashamed? Fleeing in the shame of nakedness. You might say this was a case of failure in the garden. Remember where this scene is taking place? The garden Gethsemane. In the garden there is one who was afraid. In the garden there is one who was ashamed. Genesis chapter 3 verse 10 Adam and Eve had sinned against God ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says, And the Lord came walking through the garden in the cool of the day. He called out to the man, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I hid, for I was ashamed. He was ashamed because he was naked. The failure in the garden. In the garden there was one who failed and one who, who was afraid and one who was ashamed and he hid himself happened in the Garden of Eden and happened in the Garden of Gethsemane but there's something different about this garden for you see in the Garden of Eden there was no one who stood and yielded in the Garden of Gethsemane there was they all left him they all fled and Jesus remained Jesus was not afraid Jesus was not ashamed Jesus trusted in his Father's will the first Adam, just like this young man, ashamed, naked. The second Adam, standing, yielding, surrendering, following the will of the Father. His followers were ashamed of him, and yet Jesus stood alone. Mark's Gospel paints the picture for us. Jesus is a man like no other. There's nobody else like Jesus. Jesus had a mission like no other. No one else came to do what Jesus came to do. They all left him. And there he stood, alone. This week, Logan had to write a paper in one of his classes, his English class, he had to write a compare and contrast paper. He had to take two things and talk about how they were the same and how they were different. And he chose to write on our two cats, Molly and Jackson. He talked about all the ways they're the same and all the ways they're different. And one of the ways they were different, he said, uh, Jackson is friendly and Molly is feisty. And uh, in this text of Scripture, I think Mark contrasts the actions of his disciples to Jesus. There were some ways in which they were similar. But there were some crucial differences. They sought to handle the situation by the world's methods, by fighting or by fleeing, because that's what the natural instinct is to do. But you see, had they been watching and had they been praying like Jesus told them to do prior to that, Maybe their reaction would have been a little bit different. This goes to show us what happens when we fail to watch and pray, as Jesus said. Temptation's coming. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And here's an example. Right off the bat, they're confronted with an enemy. They're confronted with a, a problem. And how do they handle this? They handle it according to the world's methods, the, the methods of the flesh. 
by fighting and wounding, or by running naked and ashamed. They don't know any better than to yield to the will of the Heavenly Father. They have failed to follow the Lord's directions. They have sinned, and yet Jesus stood. He stood for them. He stood for you. He surrendered himself for them. Surrendered himself for you. So what do you do with this? You join his reverse revolution. Reverse revolution. See, this is different than any other revolution in the world. Jesus said, you come after me like a revolutionary, like an insurrectionist with swords and clubs. You don't know anything about the kingdom of God. It is not advanced through Violence. It does not advance through power struggles. The kingdom of God does not advance according to the kingdoms of the world. You see, every revolution is about replacing someone or some group in power with another person or another group in power, but not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not advance through struggle. It advances through surrender. It's an upside-down mentality. It's, it's reverse. It's unnatural. The book of Acts chapter 17 verse 6 it said of the disciples these are the men who have turned the world upside down they were upside down in their lifestyle they were upside down in their message does that reflect us do we look like Judas God forbid do we look like Peter fighting wounding angry do we look like the other disciples, this young man fleeing? There are times that we would resemble perhaps most of these, if not all. But it's in those situations where we see Jesus standing. And it leads us to this conclusion. Surrender yourself to the one who freely gave himself for your sins let's pray together almighty God